0: Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm so proud to be joined by Fadjer Mushtak. Fadjer is co-founder and CEO at Oxile AG, an award-winning water startup offering a Swiss solution to a global problem. In this episode, Fadjer will open our eyes to a growing issue. How do long-time banned substances keep polluting our raw water sources? How and where shall we treat the around 100,000 different chemical substances one can find in water? She'll also tell us about her groundbreaking way of leveraging the most potent oxidant, the hydroxyl radical. And last but not least, she'll teach us how to smartly monitor wastewater quality and treatment efficiency. Trust me, you'll enjoy the value packed in this episode. What if we were talking of the next unicorn? You'll discover how that might become Oxide's path right after the credits.
1: For more information, visit gfps.com.
0: Hi, Fajr. Welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you.
1: Yes, thank you so
2: much for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk to you.
0: <laughs> I really like to start with a postcard every time. So maybe you can tell us where you are sitting right now.
2: Uh, well, right now I'm in my office at ETH Zurich. So that's in the basically downtown Zurich. I have a really lovely view of the Alps and the Zurich Lake and all the beautiful autumn tree colors. So, And I have a little jungle in my office, I have a lot of plants, so it's a good place to be right now.
0: So you see, we just started, and I'm already jealous, you mean, the Swiss <laughs> Alps, the, the Zurich Lake, that's just a wonderful place to be, so lucky you.
2: <laughs> yes, thank you.
0: <laughs> I would be really happy to start with your story. I've read on your LinkedIn profile, actually, that you've been studying electrical engineering, and you then evolve to micro nanotechnologies that you're applying to uh, environmental remediation but that's just what I read what I would be interested in is you telling the story so what's the story behind
2: uh, well what you read is uh, mostly accurate so I did my electrical engineering bachelor's in the UK and uh, followed by that I worked in industry for a year I wanted to know how it feels if and how I decide if I want further education and after working, a year in the automotive industry I decided I would like to study more and a reason for that was that during my bachelor's I also took some courses in nanotechnology and I was really fascinated by how amazing this field is starting from the fact that you might not see anything and then when you go to the right microscope you see a whole world living on that same surface so I knew that this is an exciting field and I wanted to learn more. So I took a few courses in in my bachelor's in the UK during my electrical engineering course, loved it, decided to pursue a master's in that field as well. And I came to ETH Zurich, applied for the micro and nanotechnologies course. It's an excellent course, which really gives you a very broad overview of what all is possible in the field of micro nanotechnology, be it Biomedical applications, environmental applications, electronic applications. It's amazing what all is possible and we are learning more and more every single day. And uh, during my master's at ETH Zurich, I I did my semester project in a lab where they are developing really smart nanomaterials for a wide variety of applications, but mostly biomedical. When I started working for a PhD here, After my master thesis, I realized that while working in the lab, we work with a lot of antibiotics, different chemicals for the experiments that literally every week, once a week uh, in our university, we are allowed to collect all the water in special containers and then ship them for basically treatment. And uh, upon inquiry, I realized that treatment happens to be incineration for wastewater that contains heavy metals or it contains organic pollutants, etc. And that didn't seem right. I thought maybe we can expect that in some other country, but in Switzerland we are so advanced and so green, why are we burning our water? And literally within the second month of my PhD, I decided to change tracks. I was still working on developing more advanced uh, micro and nanotechnology based materials, but I switched the focus from biomedical to environmental science. And my focus, sole focus was to find a better way for treating this wastewater. But we are using in the labs. And I thought if I could just start there and have a solution that can help people in every lab of ETH zurich, That's tons of water that we can save from burning. And the problem just basically starts from there, right? It's a huge problem. The more you know about the field, as I'm sure you do, you know a lot of people do use incineration for some of the most toxic chemicals that are just really difficult to treat right now. So that's what sort of sparked this joy in me that it's something I wanted to explore more and see if I could contribute in any way. And so I spent the last six years of my doctoral research at ETH Zurich researching new kind of catalytic materials that can treat water in a sort of a cost effective and a sustainable manner and prevent their release in the environment and also prevent any direct CO2 emissions coming from that treatment.
0: You were exploring that field, and let me guess, I think you found something because <laughs> actually, <laughs> if I get it right, you, you just founded your your own company. And uh, it's not like you were just doing that in your garage. You already won several prizes, and one of which being venture, which is somehow the, the biggest competition you could win. It's kind of the World Cup for startups in, in Switzerland. And when you see the list of people that won those prizes before, it sets you on quite an impressive path. But you somehow started doing it. But can you pitch us your company?
2: Yeah, so that's true. In the very beginning of my PhD, I started realizing that the materials that I was working on had definitely a big promise going forward. So my whole PhD was really focusing on different types of materials and trying to find which one is the most stable, the most inert in harsh environments and can be reused multiple times. And once I knew in the third year of my PhD, we have something really good, we filed for patents. we secured technology. And after my PhD, I applied for the Bridge Proof of Concept Grant. It is the Space National Science Foundation's grant that supports young-to-be entrepreneurs on their paths to developing a better technology with a sustainability aspect in many cases. So that's what I was doing for the last one year where I took these smart nanomaterials, so to speak, and I tried to implement them into a way where we could easily upscale their production and we don't cause any secondary contamination. And that is something that can be easily produced on an industrial scale, you know. So the last uh, one and a half and two years have really been focused on how do we take this technology from the lab where it works and it's amazing, but it has to be suitable for the real world. It has to be practical, it has to be cost effective. We should be able to make large varieties of them in a you know, reasonable manner with high level of accuracy. And that's what I've been doing for the last two years as part of my ongoing research for market entry of this innovation. And then uh, during the lockdown this year in March, I stopped spending so much time in the lab because, yeah, being in the lab makes me happy, as it does for most engineers and scientists. So I was really, in a way, forced to not be in the lab and do more treatments with my material. And I started looking at the commercialization strategy, the business plan. And that is also when we applied for the venture competition, literally one day before the deadline in March. And it does surprise me to this day that we did so well, (laughs) honestly. And at that point, we had not even founded a company. So we legally founded the company in May of this year. So we are quite young, but the idea and the innovation behind what we do has been going on for the past seven years in the lab. And now that we know that we were able to deliver successful results, especially through some of the customer proof of concepts that I've been doing for the past two years, we knew that yes, it's a pandemic, it's scary, but you know what? The pandemic is going to be over in two years with the vaccine. Uh, everything goes well but the water crisis is just growing and yeah we all need to be worried about the next big global crisis so I think that is why we did so well in the venture competition because we were so motivated like we need to get our product out there and what better platform than venture where just the jury that you interact with in different stages of the competition they are come from some really big companies, some of them who could actually be our potential clients at that point. So we were trying to answer the question but also impress the jury, right? So we were doing it to really make our case known that what we have done so far. And we got some really interesting questions for them. Some of them asked us questions based on what is their biggest issue in water treatment in the company. And it was very useful for us to see the insight from an industrial point of view, but our potential customers see the biggest problem and if we can help them. So overall, it was a great competition. And um, I think we did well because the technology part we were very confident about. And then this year, we focused uh, more on the business aspect that it's good to have an idea, but do you have the right team, right? Do you have the right execution plan? Do you have the right business plan? So that was our big focus here
0: as well. You just mentioned the team. And actually, before jumping into the deep dive and, and talking about your solution, I noticed that your team was one of the two only teams in venture that was featuring a majority of women. And uh, I have to say, I tell you, I'm really not proud. I'm, I'm a son of feminist. I'm a father of two daughters. And uh, you're only the second woman, which I have on that microphone. So that shows how underrepresented the women are in our industry in, in, in our business. And I was wondering if, if that matters to you, or if it's just something that we should maybe even stop
2: noticing. I mean, that's a very good question. I was actually in a female roundtable conference a few days ago, and we discussed that at the brilliant women, how they feel about representation, you know, because it's not just in the water treatment industry. We see the lack of women in leadership roles in many different aspects as well. And my honest opinion is that It is not something that really bothers me. I mean, do I notice it? Yes, of course. When you have these meetings, like today's meeting, there were 10 people and I was the only woman on the table. It's not something that is surprising. It's something I had sort of accepted right when I started doing engineering. In my first class ever of electrical engineering, there were 220 people there and five girls and we all sat in the first row and right behind us were 200 plus men, right? So I got that dose early on, twelve years ago or so. That that is how the nature of STEM research is, and also wastewater treatment. I realize is, and it's not a great thing. But I'm have a very positive outlook towards that because I am seeing more and more women actively taking part in research topics and educational topics where it was mostly male dominated before. So I think we are seeing a good change. Women are feeling more and more comfortable studying whatever they want to study and not because what they think would be a better job role because of, you know, the dynamics of that role. I think that's a very good thing. And I think going forward, we're just going to see this getting better and better. Obviously, representation matters and wherever possible, wherever I see more women where I had not expected to see them. I get in touch with them, I communicate with them, I say, that's great, I'm so happy you're doing this. I think representation matters. And if we can celebrate this, we should try and do that so that other women, if they had any apprehensions about doing so, they can just come forward and be like, hey, you know, more of us are entering this market. So I think it should be fine. And I think if you keep doing what we are doing, supporting choices made by people, so individual choices for their education and their career are not something that the society imposes, we are on the right track. I have no worries about that. And wherever possible, I think we should really celebrate diversity based on not just gender, but in general as well. So I think that's, that's a very good thing. And I knew this that this uh, wastewater treatment is heavily male-dominated, but I did not realize was how heavily it was. And I realized it actually this summer for the first time when we were doing our on-site pilot at a treatment plant and the very first day after having lunch uh, I was just like okay I need to use the washroom and you know what there is the woman's washroom so you can't do that because there's just not any women who work on those plants they don't have one but one month of working there all the time that was a tough month and that's when you realize we need more people out there from our genders. So it's just not even a discussion. It's just normal, right? I don't believe in forcing my ideas on anyone. I think if more and more women come out there, there will be a woman's washroom in these plants because it's needed, right? And in that same drive, I also, when I meet women who are excited in this area, I like to work with them. I like to get them more excited. So yeah, for example, one of our team members, someone I worked with for her masterpieces and then she joined the company and now she works here and she's, equally, if not even more excited about this. So I don't think it's a gender-based preference. If you like it, you should do it. And we are seeing more and more women out there. It's all good. And something to celebrate and just mention once in a while, I feel, but nothing that we need to, I think, worry about. There are so few. If the trend is right, and it's going to hold.
0: I think you're fully right. It's a matter of trend and of examples. I remember in my engineering schools, which was really about water environment, we were maybe half and half women and men. So I was like, it was an engineering school and yet we had this equality in terms of gender diversity but then when we were just choosing our specialty and it was coming to wastewater then i just wondered where were, were they all, all gone you know i was uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah change ahead and uh, i think we are on the on the right track and uh, that's agree. thanks to people like you so <laughs> thank you for that i'd like to switch to our deep dive of today and actually our deep dive is Pretty written. It's about what you do and and which kind of problems you solve. And there, I would like to start with your tagline. I was really intrigued by your tagline. The tagline of your company is a global problem, which is solved by a Swiss solution. So there's two aspects to it, the global problem and the Swiss solution. Let me just start with the problem. What is exactly the threat that we are facing that is that global problem?
2: Well, the global problem that we refer to is really a multifold problem the current technologies that have been used to treat water, be it industrial or municipal, are just simply not effective. And there is enough data and proof to show that we are unable to treat some of the most persistent mobile and even in some cases toxic chemicals with the existing technology. So what is happening is that these chemicals, because of lack of proper treatment, are now being found in our surface bodies, so our rivers and lakes, and even in the ground and drinking water. And what should I think raise some alarms um, in people is the fact that even in a developed country like Switzerland, where we take our water quality so seriously, that we found in the beginning of the year uh, banned pesticides, which are carcinogenic, in the drinking water of 12 cantons of Switzerland including that of Xerox, the water that I drink from the tap every day. I'm very well aware of what's in there. It is something that I think it's important to know these facts. It's important that these studies are done. So we are aware of how big the problem is and that we can't just keep assuming the problem is going to go away. We should invest heavily in new treatments. We should really invest heavily in making sure the problematic areas where a new advanced technology does not exist should be upgraded as soon as possible so that this a global problem. Because I know I talked about the example of Switzerland, but we are one of the few lucky ones. If you look around at other places of the world, India, China, the problem there is so much more tragic. Where in Switzerland we can say that our ecosystems are getting harmed, our aquatic animals are getting harmed. In other countries like India, where they produce some of the largest pharmaceutical production, gets carried out there. Their people are really suffering because there is toxic pharmaceuticals at high doses in their drinking water, and kids are consuming it. So this is really a problem that we can't just pretend that you know once the water leaves the facility, it's not a problem anymore. That's not true. We need obviously proper a legislative insight into these matters and we need to talk about this more so that people are aware that we need to step up our game it's a global problem and it should deserve a global attention and not just a few countries who talk about it and in that sense we are lucky switzerland does talk about it a lot we do actually have the space water Act from 2014 which asks to implement and upgrade i think if i'm right out of 700 more than 200 wastewater treatment plants have to be upgraded with the advanced treatment. And that's a very good step in the right direction because we know that these micropollutants, these pharmaceuticals, these personal care products, Ban pesticides, carcinogenic insecticides are in our bodies of water. They are in our lakes. Our aquatic animals are ingesting it. We are seeing feminization of male fish because of the EDC compounds. We are seeing the presence of PFAS, forever chemicals, in the bloods of pretty much every aquatic animal, including humans. It's a much worse problem in some parts of the US, of course, but I don't think we can just simply accept yes, we all have a bit of PFAS in our blood. I mean, yes. I think we need to have a more uh, direct conversation about it. it's a problem and it's a problem that our future generations are going to really have to tackle. And I think we need to start by doing, you know, our part of their work here by addressing this problem. Current treatments do not work. We need a new solution.
0: You mentioned how Switzerland is forward-looking. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a study around the Geneva Lake, which said that the micropollutants, we, we say micropollutants, so it, it sounds like, you know, nothing, but size of the Geneva Lake, it was one ton. If you put all of them together, it's one ton of pollutants which are there in the lake, embedded in the lake. And I remember at that time, they were looking at the personal care products and they were like, you know, just scan and read what's written there. Is it needed? You need all of those. And by putting this kind of pressure on the industrials, they were triggering the fact that some of those pollutants were removed from the recipe of those products. So That made a change, but that change is only on on scratching the surface somehow. You still, as you say, uh, there are pesticides which are banned in full Europe for 40 years and still we find them in the bodies just because nobody's treating them. That leads me to my question. Where is the best place to treat that? Is it in the wastewater treatment plant? Is it in the industrial wastewater treatment plant? Is it on the drinking water side?
2: What would be your best guess? We honestly believe that the best way to treat uh, waters which contain these micropollutants is to be as close as to the source as possible, if possible. We know it's not always going to be the case, but for example, we can have a treatment in every household complex to treat grey water before it even enters the municipal wastewater treatment plants. Because we are aware that there are leakages in the pipes, there's cross contamination issues. There are many issues when you only centralize the treatment. So. I think decentralized treatment should be the norm going forward. There is nothing wrong with imagining a water cleaning system for every household, for every household complex, which treats their water on site to prevent further contamination. The same can be said for industries, some of the biggest polluters out there, where instead of thinking oh, how can we now move this water to a treatment plant in a safe way, The conversation should be, how can we treat this wastewater directly close to where it's being produced, even more so to maybe treat this wastewater in the particular stream. So in our conversations with some of our potential clients, what we have learned is that every industry obviously produces different uh, products, they have different production lines and different streams. And a challenge that they face is that when everything collects in a centralized location, they have this sort of cross-contamination or intermixing problem. And then the problem is even worse for them because they don't even know how to treat it because those active ingredients from different streams have now reacted with each other, right? And the problem becomes even worse, which is now been forcing some of these people to use incineration because the existing treatment do not work. And what we have been proposing to some of these clients is how about we bring our, let's say, a medium-scale reactor which treats, let's say, 10,000, 20,000 liters per day and we install that at some of the most problematic streams that you have on your production line and treat it where it is. Not only is it going to simplify the treatment because we know on a given day there are these X amount of chemicals and nothing else in this specific stream. We can treat it and this will not be a bigger problem by you know mixing everything up together and making a larger volume which is now diluted yes but still contains a vast variety of these pollutants and no one treatment can solve the problem so we think of it as a centralized treatment is great it has been working for a while but i think it is time to talk about a decentralized approach where pollutants should be treated close to the source where they are being produced at hospitals, in households, and definitely in the um, chemical industry or the food and beverage industry or pharmaceutical industry. I think it would benefit them more. I think in the long term, this would be more cost-saving. They could make sure that they meet the regulations well. They can make sure that they don't have any cross-contamination or leakage issues, and it's good for their sustainable image going forward as well. So I think We need to move away from the centralized and more towards a decentralized treatment wherever possible.
0: So that is the route you're exploring. You're going to that decentralized treatment, so really next to the pollution source. So that might be even inside an industrial site. It could be that you don't go directly at the outlet, but rather directly to the production line, which is producing one specific pollutant, right?
2: Exactly, yes.
0: So how does your solution actually look like? Now that you speak, I see a box that you put somewhere, but that's Mm -hmm. really, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I I don't know if my Mental picture is right in that case.
2: I mean, yes, it is a black box from the outside, right? <laughs> that is true. So obviously going forward, our plan is to make it as easy as possible for our customers. It will be a turnkey solution. I know we throw the word a plug-in, you know, play easily around, but that is a vision to have a, a system that you can easily adapt to the existing infrastructure. It is already included in the existing water collection networks at the very end of the pipeline for that particular stream. So in our solution, what we plan to do is deliver these wastewater treatment reactors at varying scales, obviously. And inside these reactors, we will have a catalytic material it will be integrated and depending upon the TOC values or whatever water matrix it has or whatever chemicals it has every reactor would obviously have a different amount of the cleaning material we add different arrangement of the cleaning material to get the most efficient and fastest treatment possible and uh, this is one thing that we do right now with some of our clients as well every time a client makes a contact with us regarding their water requirements we obviously ask them to provide us with a technical assessment of their water followed by exchange of water sample carefully collected and shipped and stored and on these water samples then we do our preliminary studies where we study different conditions and let them know the results from a performance perspective and also from an economic and sustainability perspective and then we design move forward and start designing a larger reactor for them which would really fit where they wanted to fit and where they can get the most benefits off so i think it's very important to have this dialogue with them early on so you really understand you know in in some cases we we hear from the customers oh we have this problem in, in the centralized tanks and we ask them where do you think this particular chemical which is the most problematic for you comes from and in some cases they know right where it's coming from the production stream so we suggest why don't we go directly there and treat it because then the other chemicals that you have are not so problematic. They can be treated with existing treatments. So you don't have to have a much larger volume that is a bigger problem for you. So these are the kind of conversations we have with them. And our plan is obviously to provide them in a fully functioning automated reactor, which is easy for them to use. They have to do nothing really. We control uh, operation remotely and our catalyst has a job and they get a sort of a quick idea as well, how the cleaning is going. Our mission is obviously to integrate our reactors with a real time monitoring system. That's something we are extremely passionate about. And we know, I think that's going to be one of the areas where wastewater treatment has to start moving. You can't just rely on a surprise audit once in a while and hope it goes well. I think what we want to do is make a customer extremely confident and the treatment that they are using with the reactors, and they can do that once they have a real-time water monitoring information. That is good for the customers, but it's also very good for us, so we can always deliver you know, a foolproof treatment. And that's part of the Swiss solution tagline that we have. We want to do a good job. Switzerland is known for its efficiency, and we want to be efficient in what we do. And we want to show them that we are treating it. And if sometimes they have a different load in the wastewater we want to be able to do the treatment longer and have a feedback loop from the real-time monitoring, which will help us control the treatment time to always deliver the right effluent quality at the end.
0: Actually, there are many things in what you just said. Let me just try to unpack it. (laughs) I would have questions on the catalytic material, on the monitoring, but uh, let's go step by step. Let's start with the catalytic material. That's the hurt of what you're offering, right? How's that working? How does it look like? Did you develop it from scratch? Tell us the, the story of, of that catalytic material.
2: Yeah, so this catalyst material was uh, yeah, it was developed pretty much from scratch, starting from the nanomaterials that are embedded in the material to how we um, sort of assemble our catalyst and how we give it the right porosity. So the materials that we work with are sort of The baseline is formed by uh, polymers that are accepted in the wastewater treatment industry. So we're not working with a chemical that they're not comfortable with working with. So we are working with materials that are used quite frequently in the wastewater treatment industries, for example, in the MBR reactors. So we work with similar polymers. What we do in our technology is that we functionalize them in a specific manner so we sort of crystallize and treat them in a way that they become functional and they were not functional before we do that by giving them a specific porosity we give them by giving them and embedding them with smart nanoparticles and then we functionalize the entire catalyst on its own once all of these small ingredients are added to the recipe so it's a multi-step process that we have developed to keep making it more and more efficient so that one catalyst is really efficient. And by making this recipe from scratch and really sort of you know, improving it every year for the last seven years, what we now have is super flexible catalytic material that can be basically made into any shape on an industrial level really, really fast, like using a rule to roll technology pretty much. And then it can be designed to be fitted into any reactor size that a customer wants. And this material is very inert. It's um, quite robust in terms of harsh chemical environments, so it's very sustainable in that sense. You don't need to be replacing it or cleaning it. It is actually a self-cleaning material, which is one of our biggest USPs uh, because our treatment method basically uh, uses clean energy sources, such as we use a light sunlight would do the job the room light i'm in right now which is normal you know white led that would activate this material mechanical noise vibrations in the water this material can sort of harness those vibrations from the water and get activated and even magnetic fields for instance activate this material so there are more than one energy sources that activates a material and once it's activated, it produces large doses of radicals. These radical treatment, AOP, advanced oxidation processing, so to speak, are very well established. We know the benefits it provides. We use a hydroxyl and a superoxide radicals. We don't use a ozone radicals and there are advantages of using the hydroxyl radicals, specifically their non-selectivity, meaning they will react with pretty much every other chemical that is in their surrounding. They don't show a resistance to certain chemicals that ozone would do. And more interestingly, in the last pilot that we did with the customer, but we also realized that the one of the problem with ozone treatment that they were facing was they had in some bromide in the water. And if you have that, you end up forming carcinogenic bromate, bromate as a byproduct. Yeah. Yeah. and they have to implement a new technology according to a law and they were hesitant to go towards ozone just because they can't use ozone alone they would have to have a secondary polishing treatment like pack and then the cost is just too expensive if they have two of these treatments you know side by side mm-hmm. so they contacted us we did the pilot with them and from our treatment as a direct comparison to ozone we form no bromate. In our reactions, we directly convert the bromide ions in the water to bromine gas with the O. OH S. radicals. And that's also one of our USPs. So we can apply this technology where existing technologies are able to clean, yes, but are producing harmful byproducts at the same time.
0: So you have a catalyst. That catalyst reacts with sustainable energy, which is around, and the sustainable energy produces this uh, hydroxyl radical, and that helps you to then oxidize whatever kind of compounds you have there in the water. And you mentioned, did I understand that right? That it's self-cleaning, so it's just a perfect material.
2: Yes, it is self-cleaning because these radicals are generated in the surface of the catalyst, right? Okay. And these OH radicals and these O2 radicals are well-known self-cleaning agents. They're even disinfection agents. Yeah. People have been using, for example, catalysts like titanium dioxide, which is activated by light for many years for disinfection purposes. It kills bacteria, viruses, because the OH radicals are extremely oxidative in nature and they will react with anything in their surroundings. And that is also something we have seen from a biological estimate that we have done that after treatment, the cells prefer to grow in uh, treated water more than before. And I strongly believe that has to do with some of the disinfection properties that we bring to the water, where we're kind of sterilizing the water as well because of these radicals.
0: So it is like a forever treatment once you have the reactor up and running. You don't need to maintain it. That sounds too good to be true. Come on.
2: (laughs) Well, that really depends upon what's in the water. If you only have, for instance, only organic solvents, organic compounds, then it can really go on forever. It's self-cleaning. But if you do have any suspended solids, if you have any inorganics in there, which can sort of, you know, block the nanopores of the catalyst, then we do have to take the catalyst out, regenerate it, and then put it back on. And in one of the cases of water we got, we did see this blocking mechanism, right? Because it was an inorganic species in there, which you can't treat with the radicals like you treat the organics. And there we did uh, face a problem of having to do more regenerations. Every few months, we had to take it out do acid-based reflux cleanings and regenerate it and keep it going. So it really depends on what's in the matrix of the water. If you just give me a really nice, comfortable water sample, like the municipal water, we love that. We have been using municipal wastewater treatment with the same material for months and no issues. But... So the industrial wastewater samples are indeed challenging. And there we develop a strategy where we can maybe do some pretreatments first. And then what's coming into the reactor is free of the suspended solids and the uh, uh, inorganic components, basically. So then we can improve the lifetime. And yeah, self-cleaning materials are underrated. And that's the way to go, I think, in the future.
0: So that was actually going to be my question about the treatment train because if you mentioned suspended solids to be an issue, I could imagine that you could just have a pre-filter, be it a sand filter or an ultrafiltration step or whatever, but then you get rid of the suspended solids and then you would have your catalyst. How do we insert it today into a treatment train? Is it like you put it really at the source and you put raw water on it or is it something that you implemented between existing treatment steps?
2: we see ourselves as a polishing step, just how ozonation also sees. So we are a tertiary treatment. We do require suspended solids, big biological matter to be treated beforehand. And for these pilots that we do, we normally obviously do a pre-treatment and we do them in the laboratory. Like you said, we do sand filtration, we do a reverse osmosis, we do ultra-filtration to remove some of those problematic pollutants that can be removed well with existing treatments. And then comes the challenge of how can you remove The stuff that he can't see and it's in the water and it's hard to remove. Right. And that's our expertise. So for the pretreatment steps, we usually collaborate with other people who have expertise in providing, let's say, uh, membrane bioreactors. Right. So we connect our reactor with them in succession. And that's how we do a treatment And some of these are cases. And if you go to uh, municipal wastewater treatment land, that's the best place to try. They already have a primary and secondary treatment installed. There's no issue at all. Mm-hmm. In the biologically treated water, we just enter the water directly into a reactor. We don't have to do any treatment, any pretreatment there. So it's quite clear there is a suspended solids. For the industrial water, we do need a first stage in there. And for that, we are working with people who have the right experience in doing reverse osmosis and filtration, And then the water will come into our reactor. So it will be a multi-stage process. And not just our reactor cannot just solve all the water problems that a customer would have. So, yes, yeah, see here, you see, it's not too good to be true, you see. We need other people's help.
0: I said that as a joke, you know, <laughs> I'm really <laughs> impressed by it. I think I understand now how the catalysts work. I mean, on the surface, not <laughs> not in depth. But you mentioned something about monitoring. I'd like to come to that. What exactly are you monitoring? Because if I recall what was tested in Switzerland, there were many things. There was this uh, COD monitoring. There was uh, some biological monitoring. And what exactly are you tracking?
2: What we know about micropollutants, for example, is that they absorb and they fluorescence at different wavelengths, right? So if you want to do a really quick test, you can just look at the UV value at 254 nanometer and see how these micro pollutants are absorbing the light. And then you more or less know how many micro pollutants were gone. Because there's a well-established rule that the absorbance intensity goes down by 40%. That means 80% micro removal. So there's a trend that is established well uh, in terms of getting a quick answer. But what we are doing is we're going a step forward because absorber itself really relies upon the fact that the water has to be absolutely clear, not turbid, which is really not the case for a lot of our industrial clients. So we are looking at fluorescence as one of the uh, methods where we can combine it with Raman spectroscopy and do like deep UV fluorescence. So we are working with other companies that have their expertise and we're working together and sort of correlating lab-based testing where we know how much pollutant was removed with our treatment and what that means for the spectra of the fluorescence, for example. So that's one of the things we are doing. Apart from that, we're also looking at a new innovative method, such as a microwave resonance technology that's a completely a new player in this field. And we are working with a player in this area who has experience with that. And we're trying to sort of retrofit their sensors that they're developing especially for us in this case into our reactors and do the next pilot testing with them so like in the last pilot we did we already ha- had a collaboration with the second company that does real-time monitoring with deep UV fluorescence and we could show the customers you know you can see the spectra going down with every minute of the treatment and then we did the offline uh, analytic treatments We you know with HPLC GCMS the standards and we were able to correlate that spectra intensity here means this. And this spectra is very different from the existing absorbance measurements that you do, right? This can be applied to all types of waters, you know, murky, turbid. It's quite good. So we are using machine learning. We're using AI technology to read out from the spectra and quickly present online to the customers what's happening with their water. It's really interesting because it's not just treatment. I think what really bothered me in the beginning was I had to wait for a few days to get the results of the treatment because yeah, HPRC and GCMS, ICP, they take some time, right? I was sort of impatient. I wanted to know, did it work and how good was it? So that is when I realized we have to do better at a better real-time monitoring and we have to be able to give the customers that too so they are happy with how the treatments are going and that we have a feedback loop control. And we really have tried that in the last two pilots, having a real-time monitoring sensor attached to our reactor. With the help of the machine learning, we have trained the software to know only when this spectra reaches this level for this water should the valve open and should the water be getting out until then the treatment goes on. So we're doing studies like this so we can always guarantee the best cleaning performance and we are teaching our system Through AI and and machine learning to learn these tricks. So, yeah, that's what we are doing.
0: Incredible. (laughs) Really, uh, very interesting. At the border between those two last topics, between monitoring and the place in the treatment train, you mentioned that Contrary to the use of ozone where you would have the byproduct and the bromide-bromate problem, you don't have that because you're working with the hydroxide. But if you have a look at the way ozone is used in Switzerland, when ozone is put in wastewater, you have to put after a sand filter to use an existing sand filter as a polishing step. What about your process? If you were using your process, Okay, there's no no matter of bromide bromate, but still, if it's an oxidation, I could imagine that there might be some byproducts. You take a big molecule and you break it into smaller, which are then faster biodegradable. But still, it's still the the, the small pieces. So, uh, did you test that? Because I know it's it has always been a debate about the toxicity just right after the treatment. We know on the long run that the toxicity is going to get much better, but just right after the treatment, that's always the touchy point. Let's say.
2: Yeah, we totally agree. Just to give you a quick example of how we see that problem. In the last pilot, we did our reactor treatment with a catalyst. And at the end, we had a way to sample water directly from the reactor. And then in one way, we were sampling the water that was coming out of a sort of a post-sand filtration step. And so we took waters from both places, we did uh, deep analytics, found no bromate in both cases, did biological essays, found no cytotoxic essays, and also looking at the fluorescence intensity, because what is also important to know is that once you break these compounds down with the OH radicals, you do break them into smaller pieces, we agree. And what we saw, interestingly, at in the fluorescence uh, spectra of the real-time monitoring was that after the sand filtration, there the spectra does decrease even more. So it is clear that we are breaking those compounds with OS radicals into small products. They don't have any bromine or cytotoxic effects, but they are still there. And that is where this fluorescent spectra and then real-time monitoring came really handy. I know there's a debate out there. I recommend they use a real-time monitoring to answer those questions like we did here. So we know that they're there and the sand filtration absorbs them and the spectra becomes almost like like a water spectra, a clear water spectra. So we know that those are absorbing on those cases. What we still have to definitely do is then extract those compounds from the sand filtration and really look at what they are and how bad they could be. What we did only so far was to just look at some mutagenic assays and estrogenic assays of the water collected directly after treatment and also after the post-sand filtration step. And we didn't find any discrepancies, any differences in there. But that being said... As you are excited about what happens when they break, so am I. I find it fascinating in how much time what products are formed, right? This is interesting. I know there are a million different combinations that can take place. OS radicals can attack a CH bond, CO bond, OH bond, randomly, anytime. So it's very hard to predict that. And that is also why we are working with some experts from Europe whose speciality really is doing a modeling on a degradation product. So we're working with them to really understand at what time, what should we expect? And we do that by their modeling and doing analytics of water that we collect every minute, for example, and seeing what are we finding in the water. So I think going forward, we would definitely have some more interesting results to share in this front. I think it's fascinating to know that so that we can even control our treatment time better if we know that that's what we have after just five minutes is not problematic anymore, can be treated, maybe we don't have to run the peak for the 10 minutes, right? We can just save on costs and time. So I think once we have more data on that, that would be good. And I think the trend in this area also is to really take help from modeling and kinetic dynamic kinetic modeling and using machine learning. I think these two fields can really go in because... Yeah, doing a testing for everything takes much longer. But if you have simulations and AI to guide you, that is the future to get faster answers to these questions.
0: You've mentioned a, a couple of partners that you're working with, a partner for modeling, a partner for sensors. I guess maybe a, a partner to make it happen, uh, like a, an installer or, or this kind of company is dedicated to treatment. How do you arrange that? So can you name some of those partners or how are you working today?
2: <laughs> I don't think I'm in liberty to disclose their exact name, okay. but I can definitely um, discuss how do we get into contact with them. But in some cases, we were contacted by them. For example, in the case of uh, machine learning, we were contacted by the company, is they were looking for another approach to ozone. So they had already done some testing with real time monitoring with ozone treated water, and they were looking for a different approach that uses OH radicals. And they heard about us through um, the university landscape, basically, ETH. Contacted us and we started exchanging some samples. And through their knowledge, we learned so much about the spectra of ozone-treated samples. And we saw how a different to our spectra looks. To that that was fascinating. In some cases, these really start from getting the word out that you exist. You're doing something cool, and if someone is interested, they should contact you. And in some cases, you know, it's really us trying to call and email and get in touch ask for a meeting and discuss what we are doing, what the bigger picture is, and uh, make them see the potential in in a collaboration. Because I feel sometimes this industry can be a bit conservative in changing and trying a new thing out. But I think if you convince them with enough case studies and data from these customer pilots, they start listening and they're interested. And that is how we are working with such a diverse portfolio of collaborators, because Yeah, that's one thing to say. We'll just bring the reactor inside and our job is done. But I think we can do so, so much better by giving the customers a real-time monitoring, by telling them what's in the water, using AI and machine learning to really figure these important topics out, what's left in the water, and uh, providing all this information to the customer online, right? So they can just access it whenever they want. So really trying to make this field, which some people sometimes say it's an unsexy field. I disagree. It's very interesting to make it from sort of this unsexy point of view to a sexy comp, you know, you have an app for that. You can test what's happening with your reactor. Your reactor talks to you. It tells you what's in it. And I think that should be the way going forward so that there is a lot more transparency and a better checks and balances. Like for us, this whole real-time monitoring, for example, comes from the point that we really want to tell them that it's clean. And we want to be 100% sure ourselves that what we have done is clean. And if you don't have a constant checks and balances, how do you guarantee that? Sometimes there could be differences in production streams. There could be differences in just Mm -hmm. dilution of the water. How do you correct for that? And when I ask uh, people out there, how do they do that right now? They don't, right? They just trust that everything is fine and that when the audit comes, everything goes smoothly. I think we can do so much better for our customers. I think a lot of them really are trying to have an easier life when it comes to wastewater treatment. They're in troubles. I think we can help them. If the industry is trying to change, small companies, new companies like us with a different vision to solve this problem should do all we can to help them change. And that's where we are.
0: You mentioned the bigger picture and you mentioned customers and pilots. So where are you exactly in terms of uh, business deployment of your solution? Pilot stage, uh, already with uh, commercial references, or how do you see those next steps?
2: This whole year has been sort of, a, you know, building a credibility phase for us, where we started off the year by doing proof of concept studies, mostly through lab exchange of samples and, you know, Studying how we can treat and providing them an assessment. And then, based on the design we proposed for them through these proof of concepts, we then moved a step forward towards on site pilots. And recently, they have also started doing some paid pilots for the customers, in which case, they require longer times and more resources from us. So, we are still at the stage where we have shown on-site that our treatment works for extended periods of time. We have shown through real-time monitoring what that means, to analytics what that means. And the next stage really for us is to raise more funding. So we are in the middle of a fundraising stage. So we can uh, literally uh, build more of these prototypes. We call the prototype version two, which will be integrated with the real-time monitoring option and have an online platform integration. So that can run on the customer sites for a few months so that they understand this new product. So it's not too spooky. It's just new and fancy. They can try it out with all these new features that we have been building up uh, slowly together. And the idea is to really start from providing our customers with a Small-scale reactor first. So that product, we aim to be in the market by the second or third quarter of 2023. So in two years, we envision our first product is out there. And that is exactly to solve this decentralized cleaning needs, right? So it's kind of going back to the um, full circle. The idea for this came from a lab in a chemistry lab at ETH Zurich University, where about 60 people work pretty much on a given day. It's, It's a very busy lab. It's a big lab. And they collect... A lot of water a thousand liters in some cases of contaminated water that we send off for burning once a week the idea came from there and our first customers that we envision are going to be like research institutions like etl zurich where we have one of these small scale tabletop reactors installed in every lab same we want to do with research and uh, development institutions so be it a biomedical company or a pharmaceutical company, have these attached close to the source, and they clean about, let's say, 1,000 to 5,000 liters per day to so really small quantities, but really a solution at the source attached, and the problem is solved there. That's the first product, and then a year later, we would be selling medium-scale reactors, which would be ideal for pharmaceutical companies that we are working with and agrochemical companies that require up to 100,000 liters per day per stream. So that's the size we have in mind for 2024. And obviously the big prize is the large-scale ones, which will come in the next five, six years.
0: What is your intended go-to-market? Do you think you will deliver the turnkey solution and that's what you're going to do on the long run? Or is it something that you will make available to the players in the market, be it the, for, to take Swiss example like Vabag or Alpha Laval or Suez, to give just uh, some names? How do you see that?
2: I mean, in the very beginning with the small scale reactors that I mentioned, I think that early stage, we want to be able to do it ourselves. I think we can do that working in collaboration with a manufacturing partner. So in our business model, we work with a manufacturing partner that we work closely in the product development cycle, like right now. And then we work on a blueprint that makes sense, is um, gets the right certification through there and they make the reactors for us. Oxal manufactures and provides the catalyst for these reactors. That is a recurring business model. If your water is, requiring that the catalyst be changed once a year once every two years we would be making money from the recurring scale of the catalyst and any maintenance and just providing you with this ai-based water services so that's how we would like to generate revenue going forward the catalyst and the service uh, itself of telling them how the water looks the manufacturing partner produces these reactors and basically delivers them on customer sites and provides certification. And I think for the small-scale reactors, we strongly believe this model will hold. That is something we know we'll be able to do. But definitely going forward for the medium and large scale, we will be collaborating with water Utility Companies. We have already opened talks with some of the large players in this field. And I think the more and more case studies we do, as soon as the small-scale reactors are functioning in the market for a year, We would like to, at that point, um, work more closely with these global water utility companies, be it Spares, Veolia, there's plenty of them out there. And they have shown excitement that what we are doing is great and that going forward, our idea would be to work in collaboration with them, use their sales and distribution networks. And even a licensing model is also on the table. Nothing is off the table in the future. And yeah, so big (laughs) plans. Yeah.
0: I have a last question in that section. You've mentioned the cost effectiveness, and you've mentioned that if you compare your solution, for instance, to uh, someone that would have to combine ozone and activated carbon, your solution would be much better in terms of cost effectiveness. Actually, that would be a, a huge step forward. AOPs have always been praised as something which is really re-effective, but always as something which is also very expensive. So, if if you have the golden nugget that is same time has the effectiveness and is now cost-effective, then you're really onto something. Did you do some comparative stu- study against other uh, technologies?
2: Yeah, so the last few studies that we did with the customers' water, we did really try to have a better understanding on the energy requirements of the system and the cost. And our preliminary assessment shows that to treat, for instance, say per meter cube of water treated, our treatment will cost between 0.5 to 0.6 uh, francs. Uh, so half a franc per meter cube is the treatment cost that we would be providing. These are really sort of uh, modest assumptions that's based on what we have learned from the small scale reactors and we are interpolating, but we do believe that once we have the last systems, we can even drive it down to about 0.2 or 0.3 francs per meter cube. And I think that would make us really come in line with either ozone or pack treatment, not the combination, of course. And when we talk about wastewater treatment for industrial clients, some of them, the ones we talk to A lot of them use incineration at the moment. And there, there is really no comparison of of how much money we save those guys. So there, we don't even try to do calculations. Anything is fine for them as long as it's under incineration price, which is ridiculously high. And when we compare our technology to ozone or pack, I think with a preliminary analysis, we are on the same ballpark figure. And we know that with better reactor modeling and better design, we can even drive it down for the large-scale reactors.
0: Incredible. Well, for the non-Swiss people listening to us, uh, just uh, uh, one one small precision: one Swiss franc is about one dollar, and uh, it's very close to be one euro as well. So, just that people get a, a scale of things. But it's really incredible numbers, especially, of course, if you compare it to incineration. Yeah. So it's uh, it is really breakthrough that, that you have here. Um, Fajr, I could be speaking another hour with you about that matter, but uh, I think at some point it's going to be interesting much more for me than for the audience, and I want to be cautious of your time as well. So if it's fine with you, I propose you to switch to the rapid-fire question.
1: Sure, of course. It's time for the rapid-fire questions.
0: So in this last section, actually the idea is that I try to keep the questions short and for you to keep the answers short, of course, I don't cut the microphone. So uh, if you need to explain a bit more, you're absolutely free. So let's start with the first one. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why?
2: There are a few. I know that's not the answer you're looking for, but the most (laughs) exciting would be where we are treating a particular stream for a customer. This stream is part of the hydrogen production stream. So they are trying to make hydrogen in a more green manner with the stream, but that also unfortunately produces some pollutants for them that they would like to find a green technology to get rid of. And we are working directly with them for that as we feel it's part of the same sustainable vision that we have for the planet. If if someone is trying to build as technology around a more sustainable hydrogen production, we would like to help them and make sure that the treatment of that production stream is also sustainable and they don't have a negative side effects from that. So that I feel is something I'm very excited about because it's a very, very green project overall.
0: So you're treating something in gas or is it in water as well?
2: I know it's in water. So the okay. it's just the process condensate that comes from that production stream. For hydrogen production, they need to be treated once the hydrogen has been produced. So... We help them with that using our technology.
0: Okay. What's your favorite part of your current job?
2: Huh, there are a few. <laughs> I mean, definitely presenting the treatment results and analytics to our customers like we did today. That was a very exciting, very proud day. We love that. And I think I have to say the most important thing is the sort of privilege where we Can you know directly work with the customers and hear their problems and sit together as a team and design a solution that helps them, like really helps them out? And the fact that this sort of whole thing started in the chemistry lab one day for me, you know, six years ago, and now we're out there trying to really help people that is the most favorite part, like really having an idea and following through it and trying to really create a positive change with that.
0: What is the trend to watch out in the water industry?
2: I think since we deal so much with wastewater, I, I really tell everyone like we will stop saying wastewater at some point, and just call it just water treatment because it's not just a wastewater. Like there is so many things we can do with wastewater. You can really design a treatment that uh, helps you reuse the water, recycle the water. We should not be wasting this water. It should not be getting burned. It should not be getting into our rivers and lakes when it's not clean. So I think the recovery of uh, precious uh, resources from The water is definitely going to be something we will watch out for, and it's it's been going on for a while, and it's definitely the right trend. Water reuse and water treatment to reduce blue water consumption is definitely the next one. And I do believe, maybe I'm not joined by others, that some sort of a real-time monitoring option that provides the data to the customers on cloud in real time, I think is going to be something we all need going forward.
0: I love all your answers so far, but this one is really close to my heart, so thank you for that one.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is the thing you care the most when you're working on new projects and what is the one you care the least?
2: Huh. The most would have to be when I get to know what's in the water and what is their biggest problem. And if I also believe that it's really a big problem. For example, if a customer tells me they have PFS in the water and they are not treating it well and it is getting into the groundwater, I will be more interested to take that project in because we know how problematic PFAS in groundwater is. So if I know the scope of the problem and I know that the existing treatments can't really help, that's a challenge for us. And I like challenges, so that is the favorite part for me when taking on a new project. Because there's so many exciting projects to take on and limited time. If we can really make a difference and there's no other good technology to do that, and they have a problem, we will take that problem on. So that is exciting. The exciting. <laughs> I don't know if there is any part that is least exciting for me, honestly. I feel like I'm involved in all different (laughs) parts of every project. Um, Yeah, So far, not. Maybe when we are bigger and we have more things to do, I'm sure I'll find the bookkeeping and all those (laughs) things not so exciting. So far, it's all fine. Do
0: you have sources to recommend to keep up with the latest market trends?
2: I mean, what I've always been doing throughout the PhD and now is I look at any new articles that are published, for example, the Global Water Intelligence. I love their takes from different CTOs at different companies, and they always tell you how the market is growing, the trend lines. I like reading their assessments and their reports. I think they do a great job. We also have the International Water Association. There are many of these water associations in different countries as well, like Uh, closely follow the ones that uh, report uh, details in India as well. I'm from India, so I care about how we are changing our water view in that country. I think we have a long way to come there. So it's not just one resource. I try to do that in in the places I care about and we think we can make the biggest impact. So these uh, journals and these reports are always very good and I closely also follow, I know it sounds weird to say, but the legislative process, for example, at the EU level, the Water Frame Directive, it's really interesting to see how they are feeling about certain pollutants so far. They have mostly been either banning them or just putting them in a watch list, but not outright um, you know, regulating them. And I keep following them to see where the trend holds there. So yeah, watching how these different countries legislate on that through EPA guidelines or EU guidelines is also something I follow quite closely. And now I have to say, I'll be listening to the wastewater podcast as well. I have started (laughs) doing that and I have to say, I've been learning a few things. So thank you for doing that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot for mentioning. But from all these sources and from all these people you are working with, would you have someone that you could recommend me to invite at that same microphone
2: um i could recommend someone who i have not met but whose work i have been following because i just want to maybe see what they have to say is mm-hmm. that allowed of course um, I have, for example, I've been closely following what uh, this uh, UK-based company, Arvia, does. They also do AOP treatment. They do electrochemical oxidation and they have been doing quite well. And once they started, uh, I felt there was a very negative attitude in, in, in this field that they will not do well. They have been doing well. They have expanded to China. So I'm happy to see that they were able to make it so far in this field and that they are excelling. So I think it will be very interesting to see how they feel and if they found the beginning challenging.
0: Can you repeat their name?
2: Arvia, A-R-V-I-A. It's from UK.
0: So thanks a lot for this advice. Let me just, uh, before closing, where should I redirect people that would be looking for you? Oxide.ch? Is there any other place where you want people to have a look at what you're doing?
2: We also constantly update information on LinkedIn uh, profile. Mm -hmm. And a website is the best place, obviously. LinkedIn is there. We are also on Twitter. And if someone wants to reach us, I'm always happy to talk over linkedin and my email address is also on on our website so they can also do that
0: perfect fetcher you've been an an awesome guest really thanks a lot for everything you shared today i hope that we can meet again maybe in two or five years just to have a look at your your path and where you are standing because i think you're onto something really exciting so thanks a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you for inviting and for the wonderful conversation. It's always nice to talk about these issues with someone from the same industry, right? So it's, it's, it's fascinating to do that with you today. It was, it was great. Thanks for inviting me. And I'll definitely take you up on the two to five years offer for sure.
1: Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time!